Good morning. Let's pray together as we go to the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your Word this morning. Lord, you know how much we need your Word to equip us and to inspire us in these troubled times. And I know some of us are really discouraged right now. But I pray, our Father, that through your Holy Spirit-inspired Word that you would give us comfort, peace, and encourage us, Lord God, to fulfill your will in the days ahead. For I ask it in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, someone has well said that the tragedy of life is not in the fact of death itself. The tragedy of life is in what dies inside a man while he lives. The death of genuine feeling, the death of inspired response. The devil's masterful use of discouragement among God's people is indeed a tragic reality. It's one of his tools of choice, as a matter of fact. It left unchecked, it can debilitate even the most committed and highly effective man or woman of God. And rest assured, there is no one who at one time or another will not pass through this muddy swamp of discouragement. The flip side of that is the fact that our loving Father will lift us out of discouragement's relentless pull if we let him. But the operative phrase here is if we let him. Most often, extreme discouragement breeds just the opposite response. Instead of trusting and relying on our Father to help us, many people opt for their own ideas on how to handle a crisis. In the throes of disillusionment and despair, let me ask you, have you been in danger of or feeling like you want to just chuck it all? Have you ever questioned God? Have you ever felt like telling him, Lord, just, just forget it? Well, when an extreme tragedy struck his family for the second time, a man by the name of Dave Beeble did just that. When tragedy hit Dave Beeble the first time, he was a young minister in a little town in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And he and his wife, Ann, loved each other immensely. And they were happy in their ministry and devoted to their two children, Jonathan and Allison. Well, Dave shares his story in the book, If God is So Good, Why Do I Feel So Bad? He begins, late in the summer of 1978, Jonathan became ill with what seemed to be a normal childhood viral infection with its accompanying symptoms. We expected he would recover in a few days and we could get on with living, but he never did. And for us, things changed forever. Nothing I could do or anything that anyone could do in the next five weeks would change the fact that our beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy had suffered brain damage through some undiagnosed condition. Well, he lingered a while, but in early October, when the sugar maples are at their most glorious, he died. Well, the pain for we who remained was excruciating, he said. Well, Dave writes that when he buried his son, that something died inside of him. It wasn't his faith. Despite the anger, guilt, depression, doubts, and fears, he still had faith in God. But it was his joy that died. He still had faith 
but he lost his joy. And the result of that was a diminished ability to love God from his heart. Well, he continued to serve God, preaching and teaching and counseling and surviving, but until he resolved his hurt, he couldn't serve with a full heart. And as years passed, he and his wife welcomed a new son, Christopher, to the family and took up a new ministry. Well, the change was good and healing finally came over a long period of time. Dave writes, quote, finally, this fragmented person was becoming whole again. But I will never forget Friday, August 22nd in 1986, as long as I live. Because it was then, the second day of Christopher's illness, that it all came crashing back on us again, and we were thrown once again into the teeth of tribulation. Brain damage, the doctors had confirmed it. Christopher was suffering from what was probably the very same extremely rare genetic disease that had killed our son Jonathan. They didn't even know for sure what it was. Well, after the doctors left the room, the pain rose up and it broke me into little pieces and then rolled over me and I sobbed like a baby beyond comfort or control. And he cried out in despair, in irreverence. If that's the way it's going to be, I cried out, he says, from the depths of despair, then God can go to hell. Is this what I get for serving God? Even after our first loss? Isn't once enough, but twice? How can I serve a God like that? How can I love a God like that? Well, someone has said that when a godly man takes a punch of adversity, he can be shocked at his own fickle attitude toward God. Now, you've probably been there. One day you're lifting your hands in praise to his name, and the next day, clenching your fists in rage to his face. Maybe you're not invoking harsh words like he did, but you felt it, maybe, and you're not alone. See, if these sentiments sound a little like how you felt at certain times in your journey of faith, if you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now. It will be a kindness. Let me out of this situation. Maybe you felt like saying, I've had enough. Take away my life. I've got to die sometime and it might as well just be now. Or how about, I'm weary of living. Let me complain freely. I will speak in my sorrow and bitterness. Don't just condemn. Tell me why you're doing it. Does it really seem right to you to oppress and despise me, a man that you have made? Are you unjust like men? Is your life so short that you must hound me for sins you know full well I've not committed? You failed me in my time of need. Maybe you've thought this. You've let them keep right on with their persecutions. Will they never stop hurting me? Your help is as uncertain as a seasonal mountain brook, sometimes a flood, sometimes as dry as a bone. Well, you know, those are not words of people that you know necessarily. Those are the words of Moses, Elijah, Job, and the prophet Jeremiah in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying it's right to yell at or question God. All I'm saying and trying to point out here from the scriptures is that it's real, that people do it. 
Now, even Jesus, in a great moment of human pain, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46. You see, great men and women of faith have always gone through intense times of despondency and questioning and have emerged with this greater understanding of God's love and faithfulness than they would have otherwise. Yes, discouragement may be a tool of the devil, but it can also be the fulcrum upon which our faith is transformed from simply knowing about God to intimately knowing Him. And that is what I need to talk about today. Because we all go through those times. And sometimes it shakes our faith to the core. But at no time should we ever throw in the towel. God wants to use the discouragement that you might be going through right now to make your relationship to him stronger and better and closer than it's ever been before. He wants to melt despair away. And replace it with confidence. You need to know that no matter what, God has not failed you. He wants to use you. But neither God nor man has much use for a discouraged person. You must choose to come out of that discouragement, whatever it is, however heavy it is, and sometimes it's very heavy, and become useful to God by depending upon Him to bring you through it. Because discouragement dissolves when we depend on the Lord. Discouragement dissolves when we depend on the Lord. That's the message of Jeremiah chapter 15 and verses 19 through 21. I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles, if you would. Jeremiah 15, 19 to 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They, for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, was deeply discouraged at this point in his ministry. He had serious, serious doubts about God, his God. He thought God had failed him. He questioned the integrity of God's righteousness and God's will the credibility of God's promises, and the significance of his own life. He was discouraged. He was disillusioned. He was distraught. He was tired of being a prophet of doom. In response to his ministry, all he got throughout his whole ministry was opposition. He was a man who wrestled with personal isolation, intense loneliness, and extreme sorrow. He ministered to people who didn't care about the Lord through one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. He was thrust into this thankless job in a culture marked by apostasy, idolatry, perverted worship, and unparalleled moral decay. For 40 years, Jeremiah served as a heartbroken prophet with a heartbreaking message. 
Throughout his ministry, he was publicly despised and humiliated, yet he faithfully proclaimed the truth that dependence upon God and surrendering to his will is the only way to escape eternal calamity. Interestingly enough, he lived that message firsthand through his own intense struggle with discouragement. Jeremiah had preached and prayed and remained faithful in his life, yet it seemed as if God was not following through. Chapter 9, for instance, in verse 1 and uh, 12, verse 1, he questions God. Look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain, the daughter of my people. Verse 12, I mean chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? In chapter 14, Jeremiah prays for help in verses 7 through 9. And then in chapter 14 again, in verse 11, and in 15, verse 1, God says to Jeremiah, don't pray for these people because I'm not listening. Imagine that. And finally, Jeremiah absolutely loses it in chapter 15. And look at verse 10. He says, Woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent nor have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. Verse 15. You know, you who know, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not in view of your patience take me away. Know that for your sake I endure Reproach, And then in verse 18, Why has my pain been perpetual, he asks, and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? I mean, Jeremiah couldn't handle it anymore. This is basically what he was lamenting. He was saying, where are you in this, Lord? My prayers don't work. My service is unappreciated. You're not coming through. My hometown hates me. The whole nation wants to kill me. The only friend I have is you, and you are nowhere to be found. I want out. In fact, I don't even remember how I got roped into this business anyway. If you've ever seen the movie The Apostle, starring Robert Duvall, there's this scene in this movie where Sonny, the person that he plays, is a preacher and he's arguing in prayer with God in his upper room and he's screaming at God and he says, I'm mad at you, God. I'm your servant. You got to speak to me, Lord. Tell me what to do. That's Jeremiah's voice right here. Jeremiah's is the voice of pain and anger. He feels as if he's been dumped in the mud. And as one man has said, it's hard to sing every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before when your heart is defiled by bitterness and unresolved anger at God. And let's be honest. Isn't that also the sound of our own voices at times? We can understand how someone like Teresa of Avila 
when thrown off her carriage, slammed rudely to the ground and deposited right in the middle of a mud puddle, questioned God. And he answered her by saying this, this is how I treat all my friends. And her tart reply to God was, then Lord, it is not surprising that you have so few. See, God doesn't expect us to smile sweetly when he throws us in the mud because that's a mask. He hates masks. He wants us, in the heat of our discouragement, to strip off that mask and discover that he really and truly cares for us. That he is more loving and caring and understanding and forgiving than we have ever dreamed. And no question that we ask him will ever turn him away from us. God is big enough, my friends, to handle your questions and mine. It's when we experience those honest questions that God shows us the way through the crisis. Once we ask the hard questions, it is then that God often speaks to us, like he did to Jeremiah right here in this text. And like he spoke to Dave Beeble and to the countless others who have experienced spiritual discouragement to a large degree. God speaks healing truth. And through Jeremiah's crisis, God spoke and revealed four encouraging steps to renewed confidence and a restored place of usefulness even in his crisis. And the first one is this. God says to him, this is how you're going to dissolve your discouragement, Jeremiah. He says, return to the path. Return to the path. Look at verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Now that may seem trite, but hey, God's principles are relatively straightforward, aren't they? If you want something a little more complex than this, then you're going to have to take it up with God. This counsel is straight from the mouth of God Almighty. If you return, then I will restore you, says the Lord. Here's a timeless truth, timeless principle. The truth is clear and it's uncomplicated. Spiritual restoration begins with personal repentance. Return or repent is the operative word in the book of Jeremiah. It's repeated 111 times more than the other prophets. Did you know that return or repent, same word, is the 12th most frequently used verb in the entire Old Testament? It's used over 1,050 times. In this verse alone, it's used four times. To repent is to turn back and follow the opposite course of action that you're taking. And the Bible is rich in idioms describing man's responsibility in the, in the process of repentance. It's described by phrases like this we find in Joshua 24, 23. Incline your heart unto the Lord your God. In Jeremiah chapter 4, early on in this book, in verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Again, in verse 14, in that same chapter, wash your heart from wickedness. 
In the book of Hosea, chapter 10, verse 12, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. All these ideas are summarized by the one single word, return or repent. Better than any other word, it combines the two absolute requirements of repentance. To turn away from evil and to turn toward God. That's the idea of return. 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament verses 10 and 11 say this, says this, For, for the one who desires life to love and see good days, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now, Jeremiah's message to the people was to return, repent. You see it in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 8, in chapter 15, in chapter 18, in chapter 24 of Jeremiah. And for example, and in, in verse 7, he says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. You see it also in chapter 35 and verse 15 and 36 and verses 3 and 7. I mean, it's just all through this book. Repent and be restored, God says. And that was God's message, not just to the nation of Israel, but also to Jeremiah, God's prophet, who was in danger of going way off track in this current state of discouragement that he was in. He needed to change his mind and his ways. That's the underlying thrust of the word repent or return. Now, we commonly think of repentance as a confession of sin, right? While we certainly need to do that, the repentance that God wants is not just contrition over specific sins, but a daily attitude and perspective of surrendering to God's will. It is the ultimate surrender of self. It's not the act of feeling sorry for yourself. It's the attitude of subordinating your will to God's will. As such, it has been called the first word of the gospel. Because without repentance, there is no restoration. That's just basic truth in the scriptures. In the midst of discouragement, our primary thought is, I can't believe what's happening to me. I don't want this. Well, the first step out of the depression is to return to the path of God by saying something like this. I may not want this, but God is allowing this, so I will look to him. That's why repentance must become a daily discipline for the Christian. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That means that not only do I believe that God is in control of all things, but I realize that although life is sometimes agonizing, I must continue following what I know to be true. 
Without that kind of radical mindset, we will never come out of our depression or our discouragement. Spiritual restoration begins with personal repentance. God says, if you will turn, then I will turn. But note also that spiritual restoration brings personal reinstatement. Personal reinstatement. In Jeremiah, again, chapter 15, in verse 19, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. Before me, you will stand, God says. God said to Jeremiah that if he would get off this line of thinking that he was on, that God was like a deceptive stream, that all this stuff that was happening to him, God did not see, and return to the path of following God, then he would be restored to a place of service and be secure. The Hebrew word before me literally means to the face of. It indicates that we are in full view of God under his eye and at his disposal. A person wallowing in their own self-pity is not at God's disposal. He or she is on the shelf. Let me tell you this, we will not be of much use to God in a state of spiritual discouragement because our eyes are on ourselves and not on him. I know because I've been there very recently. And that's the crucial sticking point of any personal crisis. During our discouragement crisis, whatever that may be for you or for me, we don't see ourselves standing before his face waiting for the next assignment, do we? We're too busy sulking in the corner and lamenting about our sad lot in life. But this phrase, to stand before God, is to occupy the place of extreme privilege and honor. Do you see that? Do you know that? Do you want that? That phrase was used of the priests and of the Levites and the prophets of the Old Testament. It is an expression of dedication, allegiance, and loyalty. Did you know that as Christian disciples, it is before God that we stand, you and I? We answer to him. We serve him and no other. That is why no matter what comes down the pike in our lives or in our ministry, no matter what garbage people throw at us or what charges they level against us, we should have only one agenda in mind, and that is to please him, to please God. You're not really serving your ungrateful boss, my friend, your verbally abusive spouse, or a world that opposes you. Ultimately, you're serving God. He is the one we seek to please. Now that is a tremendously liberating truth. An understanding of that truth will revolutionize our Christian lives because it frees us from the bondage of our personal circumstances, like what you're going through right now in this COVID-19 crisis. We become bolder in our witness, patient in our troubles, secure in our trials, peaceful in our afflictions. And I got to say that there's a lot of people in the church right now 
that don't seem to be exhibiting that at all. If everyone that named the name of Christ lived in the full understanding that it is before God whom we stand, that we stand, we'd have a congregation of better husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, sons, daughters, better teachers, nursery workers, worship leaders, better elders, and I'd be a better pastor. Why? Because we would realize that there is no higher honor, no greater satisfaction, and no richer reward than to stand before God in the position of obedience, respect, and readiness to serve Him. But that's exactly what we don't see when we, like Jeremiah, begin to focus our attention on the junk that bombards us from the world around us. Jeremiah got his eyes off the fact that he was called to please God and not the people. He started to get all caught up in it and began to complain. And God finally said, Jeremiah, you're discouraged because you're off track. The first step to overcoming spiritual discouragement then is to return to the path. The second step is to refine your character. And that's in verse 19, the second part of the verse. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. Now I'm convinced that God doesn't want our disappointments to disfigure us but rather to transform us. The finest steel gets put and sent through the hottest furnace, so they say. Helen Keller once said, quote, character cannot be developed in quiet and in ease. Only through experiences of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, our vision cleared, ambition inspired, and success achieved. That's a biblical principle. Matter of fact, you can see that in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. It talks about trials and counting them all joy because it produces endurance and character. And Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4 say the same thing. It says that uh, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. A time of discouragement is a good time to stop and take spiritual inventory. It's a time to say with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me, any hurtful way, and then lead me in the everlasting way. That's Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Or as the message puts it, investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong and then guide me on the road to eternal life. In order to be used by God as his spokesperson again, Jeremiah needed to be refined. Spiritual representation demands personal refinement. 
Now, the picture painted by God's words here should have rung a familiar note in Jeremiah's mind. It's the picture of metals being tested and purified through heat, extracting only what is precious and excellent and costly and valuable and discarding the dross, the useless and the worthless waste. That's exactly what God had called Jeremiah to do as his representative within this nation. Jeremiah, as a matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, we read, I have made you an assayer and a tester among my people, that you may know and assay their way. All of them are stubbornly rebellious, going about as a talebearer. They are bronze and iron. They, they, all of them, are corrupt. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. They call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Those are sad, sad words. Sad words. And and Jeremiah did not want to be like that. In order to be a valuable spokesman for God again, Jeremiah needed to separate in himself what he knew to be true about a holy and righteous God from the dross of his human passion and complaints. He needed to rethink his mistrust of God, his angry and bitter responses to his circumstances, his complaints against how God was dealing with him, and remember two words that God always whispers in that still, small voice. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me when all seems lost. Trust me when people don't appreciate what you do. Trust me when the bottom falls out. Trust me when the darkness comes upon you. Somebody sent me a text the other day encouraging me and saying that she remembered Corey Ten Boom saying something to the effect of when the darkness comes and you feel like you're in the dark, that's when God is the closest and he has sheltered you underneath his wings. What a beautiful picture that is. I never looked at darkness as being the closeness of God sheltering me. Maybe you need to have that picture too right now. An old saint once said, when I grow weary of well-doing, when my faith sags and my spiritual heart faints, I remember. I go back to my former life before I became a captive to God and I take a long walk up and down the street of my sinfulness. And when I return, I am so full of thanksgiving to God who saved me, so full of mercy and grace of God, that my heart is once again singing and my feet are dancing with joy. Notice the conditional nature of God's statements to Jeremiah. If you return, if you return, then I will restore. If you extract the precious from the worthless, then you will become my spokesman. You see, overcoming your spiritual discouragement is a matter of personal responsibility as well as divine enablement. You and I must decide to return to the path, refine your character, and thirdly, 
God says you must restrict your vision. Restrict your vision. The last part of verse 19 and the first part of 20. They for their part may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. Our spiritual resolve depends upon personal restraint. Say that again. Our spiritual resolve depends upon personal restraint. We need to put on the blinders, folks. The pull of the world around us is especially strong in times of discouragement, isn't it? Consistently throughout the Old Testament, we read the statement, and do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Don't turn aside to the right hand or to the left. We read it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 32 and 33, the words of the Lord quoted by Moses to the people. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Deuteronomy 28, verses 13 and 14 say the same thing by Moses to the people. Joshua chapter 1, in verse 7, in Joshua's commission by the Lord, don't turn to the right or to the left. And then at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua speaks to the rulers of Israel in Joshua 20, 23 in verse 6. He charges them to not turn to the right or to the left. Proverbs chapter 4 verses 25 through 27 says this, Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Now that's always been God's message to his people because we're to be holy, set apart just as he is holy. The New Testament is no different than this. In John chapter 17, Jesus admits that we are to be in the world, but not of it. Paul wrote without apology in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, all the way up to chapter 7, verse 1, that light and darkness do not mix. They are not compatible with one another. James said that one indication of a person who is an authentic believer is that he keeps himself unstained by the world in James chapter 1, verse 27. You see, God was instructing Jeremiah the same way he instructs us. The people of God are to influence the world, not to be influenced by it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to be isolated, but we are to be insulated. It doesn't mean that we have to be segregated, but we are to be separated. That doesn't mean we claim to be sinless, but we should act like we're sanctified. God says, if you want to be my spokesperson, don't stoop to their level. If you want to be my ambassador, don't change your message to accommodate their desires. If you want to be a leader in my kingdom, don't sink to their strategies to achieve what you think is success. You look to me. Restrict your vision. God says, don't succumb to peer pressure. You be the peer pressure. And if you do that, I will make you a wall which no one can penetrate. Jesus said it this way, the gates of hell would not prevail against the church that he would build. 
You want to defy the pull of spiritual discouragement? God says, return to the path. Refine your character. Restrict your vision. And then finally, and most importantly, he says to Jeremiah and to us, by extension, remember your roots. Remember your roots. Verse 20, for I am with you to save you. And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Spiritual refreshment comes through constant remembrance. Remember that. Spiritual refreshment comes from constant remembrance. What am I talking about? These verses comprise Jeremiah's recommissioning. They are almost a word-for-word rehearsal of God's initial promises to Jeremiah upon his call to the ministry. Turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 1, where Jeremiah is called, and beginning in verse 9. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations, over the kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Then skip down to verse 17. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, Jeremiah, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You see, that's what God promised Jeremiah right at the get-go, right out of the chute in his call to ministry. Jeremiah needed to return to those roots of his call. And so do I at times, and you might too. When God calls us to do his work, he doesn't change his provision midstream. Don't forget in the valley what you found to be true on the mountaintop. In the midst of the problems, we can trust God's word. Jeremiah needed a reminder, and maybe you and I do too. I know I do. Sometimes the ministry gets hard. Things don't pan out like I would like them to. I get discouraged. Deeply discouraged. I complain. I wonder how I ever got roped into this making disciples thing. And then Jesus whispers to me and I realize, what do I expect? What do we expect? Of course it's going to be hard. Jesus told us at the beginning it was going to be hard. God told Jeremiah it would be hard right up front. Jesus told us that we would experience incredible amounts of tribulation in this world, but to take courage because he has overcome the world. He said that in John 16, 33. And that in him we would find our peace. Not in the world, 
Not in the lack of trials and tribulations of our circumstances. No, we would find our peace in the midst of the storm in him. Jeremiah needed a reminder of the promises God gave him at the beginning of his call to discipleship. We ought to rehearse ours every single day as well. Especially when discouragement comes to us. So remember your roots and remember what Jesus told us and remember what Jesus promised us. They're the same roots as Jeremiah's. Jeremiah, look at verse 15, uh, verse 20. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I am with you to deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Look at what it says there in, the, in those two verses. I am with you. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. Christ has given us all those same promises in the New Testament. In Matthew 16, 18. In Hebrews 13, verse 6. And in Matthew 28, 20. You remember the Great Commission. For I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. In the end, Jeremiah's opponents were never able to stop him. He continued until his work for God was through, was finished. The same will be true for you and me if we abide by the principles that he lays out right here. Jesus has promised to be with us. I am with you are the four most important, empowering words in the Christian life. I am with you. I am with you to deliver you. I am with you. To redeem you. I am with you to save you. The presence of God among his people is what assures us of our deliverance from our adversaries and our troubles. So whatever your discouragement is today, my friends, remember your roots. If you are a believer, your roots are in Christ Jesus who promised to never leave us or forsake us. He can be trusted. He can be trusted. In May 1995, Randy Reed, a 34-year-old construction worker, was welding on top of a, a nearly completed water tower just outside of Chicago. And according to writer Melissa Ramsdell, Reed unhooked his safety gear to reach for some pipes when a metal cage slipped and bumped the scaffolding that he was standing on. The scaffolding tipped and Reed lost his balance and he fell, get this, 110 feet, landing face down in a pile of dirt, just missing rocks and construction debris. Well, a fellow worker immediately called 911 and when the paramedics arrived, they found Reed conscious, believe it or not, moving and complaining of a sore back. I guess he would. Well, apparently... The fall didn't cost Reed his sense of humor, though, because as paramedics carried him on a backboard to the ambulance, Reed had one request. He said, don't drop me. Doctors later said that Reed came away from the accident with just a bruised lung. I tell you that story to say this, that sometimes we resemble in our Christian walks that construction worker. You see, God protects us from harm in a 110-foot fall, but we're still nervous about three-foot heights. Don't drop me, Lord. Here's something we all need to remember. 
that the God who saved us from eternal hell and death tomorrow can protect us from the smaller dangers that we face today. In your crisis, God can deliver you. He will make a way where there is no way. Seek his wisdom. Friends, the most prominent thing that he is doing on the face of the earth is building his church. As believers, you and I are part of that enterprise. That's our mission. And like Jeremiah, we have been called to a privileged mission and an assigned a responsible task. Disillusionment or discouragement does not release us from that call and that task. It reminds us, however, that we must be intensely dependent upon God if we are to survive to the end. Discouragement dissolves when we realize that truth and then take the steps that he's revealed to us in this text. So if you're discouraged today, return to the Lord. Refine your character. Restrict your vision, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And remember your roots, that he will never desert you, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. Jamie Buckingham once wrote in his book, A Way Through the Wilderness, one of uh, the books that affected my uh, early Christian life very deeply. He said, any tree can produce when planted on the shores of a sparkling river. But in the wilderness, where there are no rivers, the fruit trees need to find nourishment in another way. The beautiful date palm, for instance, which produces the most delicious of all desert fruits, he says, finds water by sending its roots into the underground reservoirs. It doesn't depend upon the showers of blessings to keep it producing, but it draws its strength from the hidden nourishment in the wilderness. This, he says, is the lesson of the desert. When your branches are barren, when all of your buds have dried up, when your leaves droop in discouragement, remember your roots. Remember that just beneath the sand there are underground reservoirs where the water is pure. Relax. Take your time and know that in your season you shall bear fruit again. Jeremiah, just two chapters later in chapter 17 in verses 7 and 8, we read these words, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Well, let me wrap it up by saying this. Remember Dave Beeble at the beginning? who cried out in the depths of his despair, words that you and I would not even think to say. Remember his questions? Is this what I get for serving God after our first loss? How can I serve a God like that? How can I love a God like that? Well, listen to what he concluded in his book. 
These are the kinds of questions that might have echoed through my tormented mind if I'd been able to put them into words. Yet, that very night, as I neared my parents' home to tell them the awful facts, God took even my angry, terrible outburst and transformed it into a revelation of his redemptive love. Suddenly, he says, as I drove, I realized that God had already gone to hell in the person of Jesus. And I knew that he had done so with a purpose to redeem this sinful world, which allowed the possibility of genetic illness and to redeem this sinful man, me. And he said, like a shaft of light into the darkness of my soul, that single insight lit the way toward peace. I could take you to almost the exact place, he writes, in the road where God met me in my pain. My words had been a cry of a broken heart, the outburst of a hurting child. God's words to me as he held me close might have been this. I understand, my son. I've, I've been there already. I've felt your pain. I've carried your sorrows. I know your words arose from grief beyond your control. And I love you still. And I always will. And my friends, I want to tell you today that that has never changed. God's love will never change. His promises don't change. So turn to him. He will deliver you. He will redeem you. He will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these promises are so astronomical to us. Too good to be true, yet too great to be missed. And so I pray for myself and for anyone that is watching right now and listening right now, that is going through a time of deep discouragement and despair or disillusionment, that they would remember the promises that God gives them. He will never leave. He will never forsake. He will always deliver. He will always redeem. He will save us. Thank you for those promises, Lord God, and may they propel us forward in these curious and, and uncertain days ahead. And may your spirit be in us And may we take a humble approach to each and every moment that we live until the day that Christ brings us home and we see him face to face. For I ask it in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.